the the main feature of this relaxed state that seems to facilitate not only psi but um, to be an optimal state for or the an essential state for a proper meditative or contemplative pra uh, practice has to do intimately with communication mm -hmm. and with um, social engagement. So who or what are you engaging with socially when you're engaging in a contemplative practice? Everyone, welcome back to Mind Matters. Today we are going to be connecting some dots on some of the various topics we've been discussing in the previous months, including a little bit of process philosophy, some first sight, referencing our interview with Dr. James Carpenter, and our interviews with Father Joseph Azizi, and something we haven't really talked about on the show, we might have mentioned it in passing a couple times, and that's polyvagal theory. Um, so I'm going to be talking about this book, recent book, Accessing the Healing Power of the Vagus Nerve by Stanley Rosenberg. Um, maybe to start out with, I'll give a little bit of an overview of polyvagal theory, and then we'll get into how it might relate to these other things that we've been talking about, some of the connections, and maybe some of what that, that might imply and the possibilities that will open up as a result of looking at all of these things together. So polyvagal theory, there was the original, or, you know, the, the understanding of the autonomic nervous system has um, evolved and changed over the more than a century that, uh, you know, we've had a name for it. And the prevailing view up until last couple, couple decades was that there's basically a... Um, Two, two aspects of the autonomic nervous, nervous system, sympathetic and parasympathetic, kind of your fight, fight or flight system as opposed to your rest and digest system. So it was like, you can be in one or the other. And if you want to get out of a stressful state, an anxious, uh, fearful state, you can enter your rest and digest state and kind of relax and chill out and get rid of that stress. But it turns out that that's actually not... A complete picture of the way that nervous system works that the so-called parasympathetic system is there's actually more there, there there's two aspects to it it has to do with the vagal the the vagus nerve which is one of the cranial nerves the 10th cranial nerve and there are two branches to it there's a dorsal and a ventral branch the ventral innervates aspects of the head and the thorax the upper chest and the organs in um, in there, and then the dorsal, the the rear branch goes and kind of innervates all the the organs. Well, some up here, but also organs in the stomach and the and the well, the abdomen and the the lower parts. So your your stomach, your intestines, spleen, liver, something like that. Bunch of those organs. Um, not really important which ones for for our purposes, but. The dorsal system is, there's actually two fear states, um, and this was a discovery and a, a development from Dr. Stephen Porges. Not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he developed this polyvagal theory over the last few decades. And he's got a, a book called Polyvagal Theory with a collection of his papers, which is quite difficult reading, but with some interesting, definitely interesting stuff in there. He's got a, a more... Uh, a, a version written in the last couple of years, published in, in the past couple of years, that's uh, a bit more accessible. I haven't read that one yet, but planning on it. 
he's a friend of the author of this book, Stanley Rosenberg, who is a, uh, he's an osteopath, craniosacral therapy guy. He does rolfing. Um, he's an American living in Denmark, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, he's lived there for past couple decades. And so he wrote this book kind of putting together polyvagal theory with his kind of hands-on practice. And, but to get back to the dorsal and ventral branch, I, I mentioned that there's kind of two fear states. So when the dorsal branch of the vagus nerve is activated and you're in that state of the, of, of the autonomic nervous system, it's what is commonly called, um, or, well, what's called immobilization with fear. So there are al- there's almost a hierarchy of autonomic states that you can be in. And the the basic state, the the or the lowest state, is this state of dorsal vagal activation, immobilization with fear. This is where, um, if you look at mammals or um, you know various animals that get in an encounter with a predator, and an encounter that is almost certain to produce death, there's an immobilization, uh, a total shutdown of the of the system that goes on. So we, there are various examples, like a a gazelle being hunted by a, a lion and the lion gets this like young gazelle in its jaws and the, the gazelle will just go limp. It's almost, uh, it's almost playing dead, but it's an automatic, automatic uncontrolled reaction. It's uh, strictly a product of the nervous system that goes into this shutdown mode. Um, it, it preserves energy. It, it, um, and it it does it can fend off predators because if a if a certain predator thinks an animal's already dead it might not um, be interested in it any longer, and so what'll often happen is the the lion will feel this, or tiger or whatever will feel this its prey go totally limp, and then just lose interest and drop it and go off elsewhere and then after a minute or two the the animal will kind of come back and stand up and shake it off. Literally, they'll shake and then just go off and as if nothing ever happened. Because it's this, the, that's the way the, our nervous system seems to have developed um, with these kind of automatic states that are appropriate to the situation at hand. Above that is the sympathetic, um, the spinal sympathetic activation systems. So in that state, that's your sympathetic fight or flight system. So that's when you're mobilized to, to either engage in conflict and battle with the, with the threat or, you know, head on out of there and run away. Um, and it's a graduated response. So if you, if, if you or the, the animal is in a situation where it, it thinks it can, or it, I don't know if think would be the right word, where it senses or intuits that it can fight and potentially win or that it can get away that it's fast enough it will do so but if it's in a situation where there's no hope where it seems like death is imminent then it will shut down and above that is the 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 the, the third state the the kind of highest state of activation is the ventral vagus nerve and that is what uh, Rosenberg and Porges call something like a state of social engagement. So that's the ordinary state of engagement that you find most mammals and humans in, where they are relaxed, um, able to socially converse with each other, essentially, basically get along and communicate. And there, and there are various pathologies or things that go wrong when with some of these states. 
So thing about humans is that we don't really shake off our trauma as easily as a lot of animals do. So if we're in a situation that seems life-threatening, um, where the end is imminent, oftentimes that can be something experienced as a child. You know, it could be um, uh, it could be a rape, it could be an attempted, it could be an assault that is perceived on some level as totally threatening, or repeated assaults that leave a person in a state of kind of chronic dorsal stimulation. And this can show up as depression, as um, post-traumatic stress disorder, but a specific type, um, because this understanding of the polyvagal theory, as Rosenberg points out, um, should lead us to even understand PTSD in a different way, that there are actually two types of PTSD. There's post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic, how does he call it, post-traumatic shutdown. You know, so there, for someone suffering from PTSD, they may be in a state of like depression and apathy and extremely low energy, or they might be in a state of, of like um, a hyper aroused state of fear and anxiety when I get maybe um, like a triggered by a, a, uh, an event or a sound or something that basically activates that, that traumatic experience that hasn't been properly digested. Uh, like, you know, like a backfiring car that reminds that it sounds like a gunshot and brings them back to the, um, to the war zone, for instance. And above that, a state of chronic sympathetic activation is that anxious, um, you know, chronic anxiety state. And the problem with both of, the, both of those states is not only do they have uh, deleterious effects on one's health and general functioning in life, but they will also, because they're not in that ventral state of social engagement, it affects their relationships and their ability to communicate. Um, Rosenberg argues that there's actually a polyvagal component to everything from like ADHD, autism, um, what we understand as mostly physical conditions like COPD, um, asthma, and that working on the autonomic nervous system and the cranial nerves in particular, not just the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, but the ones associated with it, like uh, I believe numbers 5, 7, 9, 10, 11, um, can't remember if 12 is part of that or not, that those, by working on the, 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 the functioning of those nerves and the, the basically the, the bodily architecture, that's, architecture that supports those nerves and, and gives them space to, to branch and move, that by fixing blockages and fixing alignment like in the spine and in the, the various bones associated with where these nerves are and the various organs, and get and just getting bringing that activation of the state up from dorsal or the sympathetic up into the ventral state that not only will not only does it um, um, bring about a a state of better mental health but also physical health so he in this book he quotes his you know what he's learned and what he's seen in his practice over the years and the kind of success he's had with these various conditions strictly by um focusing on bringing these nerves back into their proper state of functioning. And what we, the, the connection I want to, to make here is with some of the, the various other things that we've, but we, that we've been talking about. Because the vagus, um, the ventral vagus nerve, when we're in that state of social engagement, there are certain qualities that, um, certain emotional 
states associated with that um, with that state and that of um, ventral vagal activation. Um, one of which one of which is that it's kind of a it is a positive emotion state where um, that's where we're feeling engaged with the people around us. It, it, it can be um, a, a state of you know happiness or joy or just getting along with people. Um, also, a state of openness. Um, actually, I'm gonna I want to read just a couple of the things Rosenberg writes about this state in particular. Um, for instance, he writes, if we have a well-functioning nervous system and are socially engaged, we might naturally meet a new situation with openness, trust, and positive expectations. We feel safe and might first try to communicate, cooperate, and share. Even in the face of a threat, our behavior might still be open and friendly at first. Sometimes this positive pro-social behavior can also make the other person feel safe, which in turn might be enough to diffuse a potentially threatening situation. And of course, if that doesn't work, then we, then our nervous system will go down a notch and enter fight or flight mode where it's like, you know, the fists are raised or we're getting the hell out of there. Or um, it might go totally south to the point where we just shut down and pass out or dissociate and um, kind of like leave our bodies just to, so that we don't have to experience whatever's going to happen to us. And a couple other ones. Um, this is about, yeah, the, this is under the heading, the three neural pathways of the autonomic nervous system. So the ventral branch of the vagus nerve relates to positive emotions of joy, satisfaction, and love. In terms of behavior, it shares or it expresses itself in positive social activities with friends and loved ones. The states of social engagement Support, the state of social engagement supports social behaviors in which we support and share with other people. Cooperation with others usually improves our chances for survival. We talk together, sing together, dance together, share a meal, cooperate to complete a project, teach and nurture children, etc. And then that's, of course, in contrast to states like mobilization with fear, um, where you see the that state expressed in emotions like anger or fear, um, fight or flight, and then, of course, immobilization with fear. And he characterizes that as that's when we face an overwhelming force um, and imminent destruction. Activation of this pathway fosters feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, and apathy, manifesting in withdrawal and shutdown. So a basic that's a basic rundown of polyvagal theory. Now, that what... The, the reason I found that interesting and what I wanted to talk about today, um, aside from it just being interesting in and of itself, is it relates in certain interesting ways to the things we've been discussing. One of which was our conversations with Joseph Azizi, where he was describing Gurdjieff's uh, contemplative exercises and the, um, the phenomena and practices associated with them. And basically, if you can just, if I could summarize them just really in a simplified form, some of the important features of those are relaxation and um, relaxation and entering into this state, this, non, this non-fearful state. You could call it immobilization without fear. Um, that is a, uh, a combination of dorsal and ventral activity. And that, I didn't mention that one, that's one of the hybrid states. There are two hybrid states of, of um, autonomic, autonomic nervous system activation. 
there is dorsal and ventral together, so the top state and the bottom state, which is immobilization without fear. And that would be an example of, um, that, of immobilization where there's intimacy involved. So it might be like um, cuddling or sleeping next to someone or being in a totally relaxed state where you, where you, don't, you don't feel the need to, um, to engage in any kind of activity, but there's this kind of connection there. There's a safety being immobile with another person. But then the other hybrid state is um, mobilization without fear. So that would be the second and third. That's sympathetic activation and ventral activation. That's where you're in a mobilized state, but it's not involved with fear. That might be engaging in sports, um, playing games, and, um, and playing. So you see this in kids where they're having fun or in animals. You know, you watch dogs who are just um, playing with each other and biting at each other for hours on end, and they're having a good time. They're wagging their tails. They're not actually fighting. They're playing but it resembles fighting. So not only are there, are there those three states, there are hybrid states. So it made me wonder if there is a connection between, um, well, the, of course, I think it's undoubted and kind of obvious that there must be a connection, but to tease out what those connections might be. And it seems to me when entering into a collected state as as uh, Father Azizi was talking about, that one of the things we're actually doing is making sure we're getting out of um, that strict dorsal and sympathetic activation and entering a more um, ventral vagus associated state mm-hmm. where we are relaxed, um, where we are in a, in, a, in a state of positive feeling, mm-hmm. um, where we're not fearful because it, it's, it's like if you imagine... Um, I think we joked about it in the past about meditating and trying to trying to meditate, trying trying really hard to meditate, right? Where you're fighting yourself to to meditate, and you're it's you're not relaxed. Your muscles are are tense. Um, your mind is tense. Your mind is contracted, and the you're basically not in a state conducive to relaxation if you're you know really trying really hard to to relax. Exactly. Did you want to say something? Well, just that, uh, you know, and I may have mentioned this previously on the show, uh, during my own meditative and breathing practices, I've realized that there was a certain amount of tension that I held in my facial muscles. And uh, what, what this, in fact, uh, prevented me from doing was relaxing enough at a certain stage in, in my practice to meditate. Because all my emotions and, and tension were maintained throughout what should have been time spent meditating. Mm-hmm. And once I realized this physically, viscerally, that I needed to let go of that uh, facial tension, I was much better able to meditate. And my mental, uh, emotional state was... Um, put into such a, a, a position that I was, uh, that it changed, uh, for the better. So, uh, what Rosenberg is speaking about here in, in a number of ways is how to, uh, reach that level of emotional openness, uh, via the body it, where we don't, we don't naturally think that by releasing some amount of tension or, increasing our vagal tone that that this way through the body uh is going to affect our minds and the way that we interact with ourselves and the way that we perceive things cognitively 
or the way that we interact with others. Uh, so this was, um, this was a, a, a very accessible way of explaining, I think, to uh, his readers uh, what Porges is, is getting at in his polyvagal theory. And um, you mentioned uh, the contemplation exercises by Gurdjieff. Uh, I was thinking of uh, his movements mm-hmm. because uh, Gurdjieff's movements were all about control and being as physically aware and relaxed in oneself as one could be in order to uh, in order to reach a state of control that that was elevated, that was uh, in in a kind of synchronous movement with those that you're dancing with and performing for and for yourself. And what's interesting is that uh, Rosenberg is coming at this book in his own movement way, his own pathway, his own uh, his own kind of um, way of learning all of this. And, and that is that he started off as an actor mm. and he was doing a, a kind of experimental theater where he was instructed to try out scenes and be aware of oneself physically in, in particular ways and to try different things out. And he became so aware of himself uh, and the importance of his bodily awareness that he moved into doing body work. And this developed into a kind of sideline career, into a full-blown career or vocation, into doing osteopathy and craniosacral therapy. And, And so... Uh, in in learning about movement, in learning about how the fascia and the muscles actually sit on certain nerves, for instance, he he came at the polyvagal theory and and the importance of the tonality of the vagus nerve from the other direction. He he realized that when you move a certain way or when you receive this kind of deep tissue. Um, therapy, for instance, that you could be stimulating and assisting a person not only in not having a backache uh, or or sitting with a better posture or moving uh, more articulately, but that a, a whole set of therapeutic um, mind and and soul um, th- uh, elements were opened up. And uh, and receive benefit as well. Mm. So um, I found that very interesting, and it, it did remind me of um, of Gurdjieff's movements and how he, even if he didn't have the language to describe, you know, the 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 various uh, cranial nerves and the vagus nerve and and all of its functioning in the body, he was in his own way uh, showing people how to. Uh, how to move, and and also his exercises in some cases were callbacks to Sufi psycho-spiritual movements, and and included special breathing, and which would mean probably stimulation of the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's very interesting to see how how Gurdjieff and Rosenberg have have come at this understanding through their own. Uh, through the other, the back door, so to speak. Yeah. Well, that reminded me of a couple of things. One, Gurdjieff actually does does mention the vagus nerve in 
Beelzebub's tail is in a, with a passing reference to the wandering nerves of the stomach. Mm. The vagus is called the wandering nerve because it just goes all over the place. Right. And that was in reference to in uh, in space, you know, Beelzebub and his crew are heading to some planet or, an, or another. And essentially a bell rings and it's time for dinner. But it's a special type of dinner. And it is a special type of vibration that affects the wandering nerves of the stomach. And they're not being called to their regular dinner where they're going to eat food. They're being called to their second being food dinner where they're going to um, eat air. In right. other words, they're going to breathe. Mm -hmm. So I just found that an interesting, an interesting um, connection that uh, that the he's associating whether he I, whether he was aware of these features of the vagus nerve or not, um, because polyvagal theory itself was you know is relatively new. Who knows? Gurdjieff was an intuitive guy. He might have guessed. He might have you know seen the connection, but associating the the vagus nerve with breathing with conscious breathing in this you know, one, two sentences in Beelzebub's tales, because like you said, um, we've, this is something we have talked about before on the show briefly is that there are breathing techniques that do activate the vagus nerve because it, it runs through your throat in the, you know, the areas of the trachea and where air actually passes through, you know, the muscles that, that, uh, control your, the, the flow of air and the production of sound in when you, when you speak. So, Certain breathing exercises do stimulate the vagus nerve. And back to Gurdjieff again, I mentioned some like a basic breakdown of his exercises, and I mentioned relaxation. That's one essential component is getting into a relaxed state, and not only a physically relaxed state, but a an emotional and a and a mentally relaxed state, but also sensation, a focus on physical sensation in the body, and that's something Rosenberg is um, keen on, as well as another. A uh, friend of Porges, um, Stephen Levine, who wrote the um, what was his book in an unspoken voice, mm -hmm. and but on sensation, I'll just read a couple sentences from Rosenberg. He says, "Sensing our own bodies and staying grounded helps us to remain in a ventral vagal state, and that's that top ideal vagal state. Awareness of our body can help us avoid getting carried away by emotions that can lead to faulty neuroception." Um, we won't talk about neuroception, but so there's this focus on sensation. Again, that's an integral part of Gurdjieff's type of meditative or contemplative practice, but also not just those two things, because of course, in the Gurdjieff system, there's always a focus on three aspects of being, you know, your, your physical body, your emotional nature, and your thinking, your thought, your mind. So there is in in the Gurdjieff exercises, you're not just shutting off your mind to to go off into some astral plane and just chill out and and uh, have a, a great experience. No, you're you're you have attention. You're aware. You're actively um, <clears throat> every every aspect of the exercise. There's an active component, so you're actively actively sensing your body, different parts of your body, actively re. re um, um, relaxing and releasing tension in various parts of your body, actively visualizing things in certain cases, and actively directing the whole process. You're not just shutting off for an hour or ten minutes or five minutes. It's an actual exercise. You know that's why that's why he used that word. It's not just it's not a it's not time off. It's actual work. It's an exercise. Mm -hmm. 
So that leads me to First Sight and our discussion with Jim Carpenter. Because, funny thing, when you read the description of the ideal state for, um, what would you, how would, how would you call it in First Sight Theory? Um, for psi receptivity and, um, or maybe that's a good way to put it. This is what uh, Carpenter writes in the section on personal exploration of psi. He writes, am I on the right page here? Oh, 338. Okay. So this is in his conclusion to this chapter, chapter 20. So if you wish to explore psi in a personal way, here are some examples of exploration that can give you hints on how to proceed. It is in interesting to note that all of them, in different ways, stress some things that are stressed by first sight theory. Um, these are all the people he's talking about that are kind of teaching skills. It is important to develop openness to psi, a working belief that is real that it, that it is real and valid. You should strongly want to succeed at expressing psi and develop ways to make that intention seep into the unconscious levels of your functioning. You should do things to diminish your anxiety and heighten your experience of playful creativeness. Be disciplined and objective and protect yourself from self-deception. Self, uh, Have a scientific attitude, seeking more than self-gratification. There is one other important feature that Sinclair, McMonagall, Batchelder, and Owen had in common. They worked in groups. They were not to do their exploring alone. So this is after a section, you know, dealing with various people, the names I just mentioned, giving their own suggestions on basically how to, you know, develop your psi or something to that effect. And so what Carpenter's doing is he's pointing out the, the aspects of their advice that have something in common with his theory. So, and his theory is based on the uh, parapsychological research on the, the features or states or... Um, personality characteristics that are conducive to high psi scoring. So those are like, um, some of those are openness as opposed to, um, openness as opposed to kind of closed mindedness mm -hmm. that it does. If you, if you're, and going back to Rosenberg, like he described that encounter that you're likely to have, if you're in a ventral state, if you, um, it, it is one of like openness, trust and like an openness to experience. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> well, for, for those who haven't heard, uh, our interview um, mm -hmm. on the subject. So uh, this isn't um, having psi for the sake of being able to predict lucky numbers at a horse race, for no. instance. This is about uh, a, for lack of a better term, intuitive uh, ability to perceive things, to, to, to have knowledge of yourself, hopefully, and others and things around you that you may not necessarily be ready to quantify uh, with with the normal kind of uh, causal interactions, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there's a better way of explaining that or not. Well, I just uh, want to touch on the idea that, um, as Carpenter brought up during the interview, that it's not really knowledge. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's inklings. It's, uh, it's uh, an inkling of something that's unknowable so you can't you can't really say that it's knowledge you're not getting knowledge from it 
Um, and so in that sense, uh, you're not, um, you're not really learning anything. It's, you know, you might learn how to, to deal with that kind of information, but it's really not, um, it's not part of like the, um, you know, it's not a, a real way to gain information. And I think he talk he talks about the fact that it's, um, that usually when you are in deep need and you are, you know, open really in some fundamentally unconscious way to any sort of hope, any inkling of a way out of a situation that um, Psy can manifest mm-hmm. um, in dreams or in you know strong feelings, strong gut instincts. Okay, I need to do this or I need to do that. Um, but it's not a form of knowledge in the sense that you you will never know for sure if that inkling was even yeah <laughs> an inkling right because all you all you have is the inkling you've got mm-hmm. the you have you might you might see a person and just and get a bad feeling and then afterwards you nothing happens so all you're left with is this memory of this bad feeling you don't know if you just had a you know if you just had a, a bit of bad gas that gave you a bad feeling when you saw this guy or if or if you're picking up on something and then the only way to actually gain knowledge for it according to the theory and carpenter is to then confirm it right so it it's the confirmation that kind of solidifies the the inkling that that you got um because before that it's it's just an inkling it may or may it may or may not be based in some um actual information that was received on a subliminal level mm-hmm. but it hasn't uh, but you have no way of of knowing because according to um like carpenter's epistemology i would say you own you in this world in this physical world as we experience it we only can be said to know something if we have a um, an experiential confirmation of it um, some way of of knowing that we know as opposed to like uh, let's say i have a dream um if i have a dream that a loved one is in trouble or, or has experienced a, an injury or or is just um, yeah, just in trouble in some sense. If I never find out that any of my re- relatives had, you know, anything bad happen to them and I can't confirm it, can't confirm or deny it, I, I can't say that I have knowledge about it because I don't know whether it was just a random dream or whether it was associated with something. But if I can confirm it and then I find out, oh, well, right when that when I was having that dream, the next day I find out that my, you know, my relative got in this accident and had to go to the hospital, mm-hmm. then it's like, oh, well, that seems to suggest that there was something more to that dream than just, you know, just a random, um, you know, thing that I experienced during, during my dream state. So, um, but to, like you were saying, first, Ilan, for people who haven't watched that show yet or haven't read the book, just to give a, a, a really simple rundown, it is those, those inklings, those snatches of, of information or images or feelings or, um, Things of that sort that are that are what Carpenter is talking about when he's talking about first sight theory. So his his um, epistemology or his 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 philosophy of how this is happening is that we are essentially um, minds and have access to this wide range of of meaning. We are meaning make like minds are meaning making things. And we're constantly in this world of meaning and we're constantly um, receiving signals like receiving or 
We're constantly prehending these meanings in the world. Some of them rise to the level of experience or consciousness, whether it's in a, um, uh, a sensation in our bodies or, a, or even a subliminal effect, like a, a raising of, of our heartbeat, or, um, or we start to sweat a little bit and we don't realize why, because we're constantly, our, our minds and, and our bodies to a degree, because I think they're an extension of our minds, are constantly receiving these meanings of, of import that are important in some way or valuable information of some way, because they may be they may be hinting at some kind of um, danger. So we might, might not even be consciously aware of it, but our body might be sensing the danger mm-hmm. and reacting to danger. And th- these are some of the experiments that, that he cites to show this, that there is just like we respond that way to subliminal information. He talked about the latest studies that he was doing in our interview with him, that our bodies respond the same way to psi information that that uh, that subliminal effect on our physiology is the same and that so there is a survival aspect uh, uh, of staying alive to this information that it's important to us because in order to be here and do what we do we need to stay alive so that information is heightened it's like okay we're walking through the forest and there's a predator behind there and we may just on a on a whim decide oh i'm gonna i'm gonna turn left instead of right we have no idea why we did it um, but there was just something and enough of a response in our body and in our, in our, whatever motivates us on that subconscious unconscious level to make us take that left path. Whereas if we would have gone right, we would have, would have been eaten. So, but it also le- raises, the, those are the kind of more subliminal responses, which he focuses on because he's, he's making a comparison to the, the subliminal literature in the, in, uh, of psychological studies. And, but it does it does rise to the level of conscious awareness where it might be, where it might be something like a dream or a a waking vision or a, or a thought that comes into our minds. He gave the example of, um, the time where he was just out of nowhere, started thinking intently on one of his patients Right. and turns out that they were in a really bad state and needed to talk to him. And, Mm -hmm. and he was able to deal with that, with that situation. And it just came into his mind. So. And again, do you, is it just, was it, was I just randomly thinking about that person? Did something, was something I was thinking about, about before remind me of that person? And it had nothing to do with them and their situation and as they're living right now, or was it actually, um, because that person is important to me that on that level of the subconscious, I'm receiving that, that meaning that's kind of seeping into my consciousness through my body and through my, through the, you know, the. The, the roots of my mind, essentially. So that's a basically a, a brief rundown of the theory. We're we're going to have uh, Jim back on the show sometime in the future to talk about more aspects of that. But um, getting back to the connections with uh, polyvagal theory, um, like I was saying, in in all of these studies, what he does is he he looks at all of these features of uh, all these states and characteristics and and traits and how they do or or don't facilitate um, this um, this kind of psi function um, and the, the the positive like receptivity of psi information. And some of the features you can't be in a fearful state, you can't be in an anxious state. You have to be in a, an open, relaxed state, um, open to the experience, um, relaxed, playfully creative. So that's a ventral vagal state where you're playful and involved with other people and and socially engaged. So I'm wondering, maybe I'll ask him next time he's on 
if he if he's familiar with polyvagal theory because I, w- I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if there was a connection between these all of these states that he the, the constellation of all these states that he's describing and all these traits and a, a ventral vagal state mm-hmm. that if if they were able to to measure or even just focus on the ventral state if that would encompass a lot of these um, features that are conducive to to psi functioning so <clears throat> an interesting connection there but the connection goes even a, a bit deeper than that or deeper or um, stranger. Well, more, how can you, can't get much more strange than Psy, but that is that Psy is, you know, like I said, dealing with this world of meaning where potentially you have, have potentially there is a whole cosmos of meaning that is impinging on you in some way and affecting you in some way and that you are receptive to. The vast majority of the things in the world are deemed irrelevant by you know the roots of your mind because you have a specific purpose in your life at any given moment in your body in your space so not only does something um, happening to maybe one random person in their apartment on the other side of the planet probably not affect you and probably isn't in, probably isn't important to you um, the same would go and it would even further for you know what's happening to some rock on Mars or out in the distance um, you know, solar system or in another galaxy or whatever, all this stuff is most of this stuff. The vast majority of things in the universe are irrelevant to, to you at any given moment. And that's why arguably you are, your experience is channeled only to your immediate experience. Cause that's, what's most important at the moment. Um, because if it, if it wasn't, you wouldn't be experiencing it. Um, so, but there's this potential for all these things, all these things going out there. So, while a rock on the, you know, on the far side of the moon or on Mars may not be important, if there's an asteroid hurtling towards space that you know scientists haven't identified yet, or a comet that might be important too. And you might have, you know, you might have people starting to get visions of the apocalypse and you know fire and brimstone because who knows that might be on a on a collision course, um, or there might be. There might be, um, you know, intelligences out there, and if somewhere on on this, somewhere out in this, you know, vast universe, there might be other intelligences. And is it possible to communicate with other other intelligences, not just other humans, but but maybe animals, maybe something unknown, um, something something that you might re- might refer to as angels or just higher powers or whatever. And that that so the inter- the one of the interesting. Uh, possible connections I see there is that you have this vagal state, right, of social engagement, of communication. The the main feature of this relaxed state that seems to facilitate not only psi but um, to be an optimal state for or the an essential state for a proper meditative or contemplative pra- uh, practice has to do intimately with communication mm-hmm. and with um, social engagement. So. Who or what are you engaging with socially when you're um, in this specific situation where you're alone in your room, you know, sitting or lying down or do or whatever, and engaging in a contemplative practice? Well, it's not with anyone else in the in the room with you. It could be um, well yourself, different aspects of your of your own being and uh, and the 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 vast cosmos of your own consciousness, or um, 
you know, potentially even weirder stuff than that. Um, to, and, and that's where we get into aspects of like, uh, what we had, what we were talking about with, with Steve Hertenstein and, you know, Ibn al-Arabi and, and, uh, prophets and mystics and what's actually going on in, in a lot of those cases. Um, well, again, just like with sci information, maybe we can't know for, for certain what's going on, but I think all of these things together give a kind of hint of what may be going on, that there is some kind of communication that is, that is going on, whether it's with one's self, however you might define that, or with like, uh, you know, Ibn al-Arabi talking to the prophets and going on, you know, mystical journeys with them and, uh, and, uh, receiving information and, so it's very possible, for instance, that uh, Ibn al-Arabi and guys like Gurdjieff uh, were wired, uh, for lack of a better term, or, or had a certain constitution mm. or state of their nervous system physically that, in addition to their practices and their focus, uh, enabled them to uh, open their minds, to stretch their minds, uh, to exercise their intuitions, to uh, contemplate things that were true based on knowledge, conscious knowledge that they attained through other teachers, through, uh, through learnings. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was a kind of a positive reinforcement mechanism that they worked on all their lives and sought to, to teach in their own ways and to, and to show other people based on their own level of being. Mm -hmm. uh, so, there is a, a definite component to a person's uh, development and level of being and the state of health or non-health mm -hmm. of their nervous systems yeah. is essentially what you're saying. And just, just one thought I wanted to share, as I was reading Rosenberg, I was just thinking about all of these, uh, these horrible riots and all the violence that we're seeing in the U.S. at the moment and, and in Europe uh, to some degree. And I thought, gosh, th these people uh, are so reactive. Uh, they're so, even if they're working together uh, on some level and in, in their violence, that, that physically uh, and emotionally, they're quite unhealthy, uh, that they haven't uh, developed any level of um, vagal tone or, uh, I mean, you know, this, this is just me speculating as I'm reading this, but you, you, you don't imagine someone who is healthy in body, mind, and spirit uh, going out and, and lashing out and, and being so singularly focused on destruction uh, and, and not creating any kind of opening for uh, any reasonable openness with, with others. Well, you know, that... that uh, makes me think of um, what you were talking about, Harrison, with the shutdown of the nervous system and the shutdown of the economy that occurred, you know, prior, right yeah. prior to a lot of people, um, you know, beginning to, to riot and wondering if there was a connection and some, maybe some form of that, the hybrid activation um, so that it is like a, a mobilization with fear, you know, mm -hmm. a, a reaction really a, on a nervous system level, a an unconscious um, reaction and overreaction really to to many uh, perceived slights that have just irritated a, a nervous system that's you know that's very volatile yep. and that is you know can't really handle the kind of 
the kinds of stress that are being uh, put on it. And, and I think in, in many cases that, that I think that could help maybe explain why things really, you know, the fan, the, the flames were really fanned just recently. Um, you know, obviously there are other people who are a little bit more instrumental about their, their violence, but I think a large number of people, um, you know, are like in, in some form of, a, of that hybrid state, like, mm -hmm. like you were talking about. Um, I had one question um, about what we were talking, what you were talking about, Harrison, with uh, the belief, the necessity, and the necessity of belief in Psy mm. to be um, part of the, you know, the ability to actually mm -hmm. receive Psy information, and it made me wonder if belief in Psy wasn't the only belief that sh that you needed to have, if um, the belief system of the individual plays just as big a, a role in the kinds of information mm -hmm. that come in because you know like you get like ibn al-arabi he's communicating with jesus and allah and muhammad and adam and moses and, uh, and, Mos and also and everybody yeah <laughs> and then you know you have somebody like gurdjieff he has different beliefs um and you know i, I don't i know that there were some hints that he was, you know, communicating, you know, perhaps through hypnosis with with different, you know, whatever yeah. intelligences or, but we don't know exactly. I don't get the impression that he was talking to to Adam or to Abraham or mm -hmm. maybe he was. Well, hold that thought for a second. There's one statement in, uh, I believe, Gurdjieff and the Women of the Rope, may or may not be that one, where he tells whoever he's talking to that his teacher that he's in constant communication with his teacher. In fact, he's communicating with him right now. You know, mm -hmm. the, the implication being that it's on some other level that he was, that his teacher was. Mm -hmm. um, and whatever that might mean, you know, that's open to interpretation, but yeah. But it just made me, made me think about when you were asking like, who, what are you communicating with when your social engagement system is on and then, but you're all by yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I, it got to me thinking of, um, you know, like a, like a cable network or, yeah. or something like, you know, are you tuned into CNN? Are you tuned into yeah. Fox? You know, are you turned into Abraham? Are you? Is there are there objective sources of information uh, in the in this realm versus subjective versus lies? Are there are there um, objective forms of intelligence that give different kinds of information? Are there mm -hmm. different sources for different kinds of information, um, and that can help explain why? Uh, you know, you you get this kind of recurring um, these recur reoccurring forms throughout history mm -hmm. that that will pop up in in mystical states. Well, that, that's very interesting because uh, the first time we interviewed uh, Joseph Azizi, he talked about elementals mm -hmm. as this uh, source of negative information that was or had a uh, influence over our emotions that were kind of pushing the buttons Panic. of 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 the, the the limbic hijack of individuals and and raise the level of fear and hysteria to this almost macro um, level. So you know, I think it I think it goes both ways. But what you're saying, Corey, is uh, are there these objective? you know, intelligent sources of information in the universe that 
that we have access to. And this just gets my thinking back to the idea of what are we doing when we're alone by ourselves in our rooms, contemplating and in this totally relaxed state. And I would say that part of the answer to that is that we're, um, we're emptying our cups to some degree. We're uh, relinquishing ourselves of, of some of the noise and the reactivity that we may be picking up or have the habit of engaging in uh, automatically and making this kind of conscious effort to, to be ideally receptive to those things that, uh, that would help us to reach mm-hmm. greater clarity. Uh, and and stretch our minds to this these sources of information from without, and perhaps you know cl- clear enough of our heads to access information that we already uh, do have knowledge of and and, and obtained at some point. Well, I was just going to say that the that uh, that fear that you know shuts down the um, uh, the you know engagement system mm-hmm. that. I think that there there's a really good reason for a lot of people not to just let in sigh you know, yeah. that on some level there's, you know, that it's, it's a good reason for a, a lot of people to just be materialist and to shut it out. Like it doesn't exist because mm-hmm. as you're pointing out, um, there's a, you know, an attunement of the, or a calibration of the nervous system that should take place as well probably mm-hmm. as we've been discussing a, a calibration of the the belief system mm-hmm. and a gaining of a lot of knowledge and a testing of of beliefs because um yeah there's i would imagine that um you know there's a lot worse things out there than you know like a grizzly bear yeah <laughs> and that it can be very um pernicious mm-hmm. you know that you just don't know right there's uh, you know, like he, like he recommends, well, you know, go with a, you know, you know, if you want to test this kind of stuff out, test it with a, with a group of friends. I said, well, you can go, um, test out the grizzly bear with a group of friends too, and see how that, you know, how far that gets you. But I think that there is, uh, that the, our, our culture has let us down, um, or we've let one another down in, in some way that, that we don't have, uh, a framework for understanding this very fundamental and mm-hmm. common sense part of uh, what was, you know, once common sense to our ancestors that this is the kind of thing that you wouldn't have to, you know, convince anybody about that you, you know, that you that you can gain information through um, a medium besides just your eyes and your ears and mm-hmm. you know your taste buds. That there's there are other ways that you receive information and you know I mean. Just you know, a hundred years ago, people you know you pray and you'd expect some sort, some form of an um, inkling, or you know, it's it's very much just a part of our 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 not our daily experience, but especially in times of crisis, I think most people um, experience that kind of a that kind of warning mm. or hints or you know, just don't do this. You know, or you know, I'm I'm open. I have no nothing, no hope. And then you know, there's some serendipity, something just like an angel seems to swoop in and to, you know to mm-hmm. to save you from you know whatever the chaos in your yeah. life. Um, and it's it's it happens in a way that there's no clear 
you know, cause and effect, why this person came into my life at right at this point. And, you know, it was just exactly that person that I needed, but almost as though, you know, there was on some level, some, some kind of a communication between yourself and, you know, a loved one or somebody who became a close friend or, um, you know, and then also vice versa, somebody comes in and you think that they're, you know, they, they're the person there to help you. And then it turns out, no, they're, um, they're the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, it's, there are um, these these things, serendipity, sigh, all these things happen, and we don't uh, in our you know materialistic culture. There's just no room for it, uh, and there's no possible way that there could be room for it. Which is sad because you know Dr. Campbell makes such a, a great argument here, but it's you know it just falls on deaf ears as it does time and time again because of these beliefs we have. Uh, that's a false. That's just a false belief that we have, and mm -hmm. it's that's really all it, it comes down to because it's not empirical. It's not based on science, you know. It, I mean, I think a lot of it is based on fear, and it's based on, um, you know, politics. It's based on reputations. It's based on how you get who, you know, if you can publish your material. It's based on the status quo, but it's not true. It's a it's a false belief, and you know, adjusting that that belief or readjusting that belief is, you know, something that I think it will take the work of like scientists and, but then also, um, you, uh, the work of the individual to, to test that kind of stuff and really seek to, to rectify that for him or herself in as safe and as practical a way possible. You know, I don't know if, seeking psi information, you know, trying to actually yeah. engage in that is the right way to do it. Yeah. But reading about it, learning about it, knowing, you know, and like, like you were saying, you know, doing these exercises and calibrating your, your machine and your nervous system and, you know, becoming healthy so that, you know, the slight breeze doesn't turn you into a, uh, militants yeah. in, in the streets but you know that's mm -hmm. and you don't want to blast the doors of perception open right, right it's right. like uh i think william chittick had written something in sufi path of knowledge uh, in reference to a passage from ibn al-arabi um, about something like that the in the western world there's this kind of obsession with altered states and and exploring the realms of of the whatever and yet Without, without the realization that there are realms and and aspects of of the imaginal world that are worse than the worst jungle, you know, with dangers that are lurking and that you can't possibly know, and yet there seems to be like um, there's a, a a kind of spiritual um, spiritual narcissism about just going for experiences for the sake of experience just because you want to high basically it's like it's a spiritual drug so you have a lot of spiritual addicts who just want to feel good and have you know a hit of of that positive spiritual emotion but it isn't tied to any concrete aim um on top of that or beyond that and that's why um i think it's important in reference to that like to those warnings Corey, mm -hmm. to if I'll, I'll go back to that paragraph that i read where he, where Carpenter recommends to be disciplined, objective, and to protect yourself from self from self deception, and to have a scientific attitude, seeking more than self gratification, because if you're just seeking some kind of spiritual self gratification, you're entering this jungle, like Ibn Arabi might say, or Chittick, and 
the what and this is what ties back to to Gurdjieff is this need for objectivity for testing for for essentially skepticism because I think you brought up a, a really interesting point, Corey, a bit earlier about the, the the nature of the information that one is receiving, right? So you've got Ibn Arabi talking to Adam and Moses and Jesus and Muhammad and all these guys, right? And you have that throughout history. All all of the all the prophets are talking to someone specific, right? And then the the, the saints of that religion talk to the same people. Um, well, we're in a time now where a lot of people don't have the um, let's say the, the the state of mind where that's a possibility because there is a skepticism in our modern culture about um, uh, certain aspects of history and, and reality but and there's more of a, a critical mind that that can that can be approached and I think this is what Gurdjieff actually did was to apply uh, that level of or almost the necessity for that Western um, rationality and skepticism to, to merge it in a way with uh, the Eastern spirituality you know in his terms and on, but on the nature of that communication, it's almost like um, in Ed Kelly's book, Irreducible Mind, on on psi phenomena. And I'll always remember this in the introduction. He talks about the mind and the idea that the mind is oneric in nature. Oneric from oneros, uh, Greek for dream, I believe. That consciousness is basically, uh, and, and the mind creates order and images and symbols out of meanings and cut off from the sensory world we create it creates dreams um, like fantastical images that aren't aren't based in physical reality Um, but then once you once you wake up and you're in this waking sleep then that dream is that that uh, that function of the mind is now channeled according to the objective um, things that you're interacting with, the objective meanings that you're interacting with in in a space-time environment. So as opposed to some to to some random person being Corey in my dream, now it's oh, it's actually Corey in reality, and that that function of the mind, that image-making function of the mind, is channeled and um, channeled within the parameters of the you know the the physical environment that I'm living in. And so the nature of the of the that level of the mind and dealing with the imaginal you know realms is that it it gives form and uh, it gives form to the meanings that are, are coming so it may be that that is is just a function of uh of our mind that that it will take uh it'll take a form that we're able to accept for instance so ibn arabi may not may not have been talking literally mm-hmm. to you know to any of these figures but that's the form that it took um, the form that those meanings took for that purpose. Of course, then you get into, again, the, the dangers of, well, who and what can take what forms and for what mm-hmm. you know purposes. And we were just watching the, finished watching the, the German series Dark where there's all kinds of manipulations going on and who's who and what are, what are they, are they telling the truth or are they trying to, to get me to do something that they want but they're lying about their motivations for what they want me to do and et cetera. You, you walk into a jungle, right? So there is this function of, of, the the almost mythic and symbolic and uh, imagery of the of the imagine imaginal world realm um compared to to what we might call a, like objective reality so it may be that there's an a certain objectivity or, or reality about the the experiences of of these mystical visions but that the form they take is malleable according to the 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 receiver the person on the on the receiving end of these of these visions and maybe just to 
to close out, um, to I'll, I'll read one more little bit from Rosenberg, um, a kind of mundane, innocuous statement on the surface of it. He writes, the way other people respond to us is based on a combination of the state they are in and the state we are in. Our emotions play out in the interaction between the state of our autonomic nervous system and theirs. So basically, our interactions are determined by the, the relative states of our own nervous systems, our own autonomic nervous systems. But that, I think, on that higher level, on that cosmic level, applies to, to what we were talking about, about this, these reception, this receptivity of an information and the, the forms that it takes in, um, in symbolic form and, and the imagery that it takes, is that the state we are in determines the, the, the level of information we get and the state. There, basically, there has to be a, a meeting of minds, essentially. There has to be a resonance between the two states. If you're in a, a state of where you're seeking self-gratification, you know, spiritual self-gratification, you might achieve contact with either some part of yourself or some part of the cosmos that is more than willing to feed into that, right? And to just to, to lead you down the path to um, self-gratifying yourself into the grave. Um, or if you, if you have uh, an aim that is different than that, a, a purpose and, a, and a, a search for meaning that is different than that, then the, in, the, the, the source of information that you might be able to receive with a critical mind, you know, and with a, 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 um, with a search for objectivity, may be orders of magnitude greater than that and more, and more, more objective, more clear, more um, um, just on a higher level. So all of this is to, to say that maybe it's, um, um, like you guys have said, it's not, uh, it's not a matter of, you know, want, let's say if you look at the first sight book and you, oh, oh, I want to work on my psi abilities just cause that would be cool. It's like, okay. Um, or let's say you're in a dorsal, you know, a dorsal vagal state and, oh, I want to, I want to do whatever. Well, you have to, you have to take you have to take yourself where you are and go from there. So if you're in a dorsal vagal state and you're depressed and you can't do anything, the immediate concern shouldn't be some, you know, manic vision of spiritual enlightenment. It should be getting out of a dorsal vagal state, right? You know, to, to get into a social engagement state where you can engage with the people around you and meditating or, you know, or something might help. Um, doing body work might help, but, it, but on every level there should, you should, your your program for your own development should be um, probably um, based on where you are at and um, with a possible vision of where you could be, of course, to to act as a pull to get you there. But um, basically, to be to have a to to strive for self knowledge and to know where you are and what's reason what's reasonable, what's uh, what's possible, um, what um, what the next step might be. I was just going to say, it sounds like this this book is a, has a good uh, framework for yeah. understanding uh, mm -hmm. where where you might be, because yeah. that's often the most difficult yeah. part. Like you think it'd be easy to know where you're at, yeah. but that could take years and years yeah. and years before you figure out oh where you're at. But if you if you uh, you know do some recapitulation and you read a little bit just about the nuts and bolts kinds of stuff, then then it's a lot easier to find out. Okay, so this is where I'm at psychologically. Yeah because of these experiences that happened to me and how I, my symptoms, my clinical symptoms manifest are similar to those that are, you know, discussed in, you know, polyvagal theory or this accessing the healing power of the vagus nerve. Um, so I know on 
this uh, very nuts and bolts machine level, um, just like I was going to take my car into the mechanic, I know that these are the things that I need to do in order to make it so that I can function better. Yeah. And when you have that kind of information, that's, that's some of the most powerful information that a, an individual mm -hmm. can get. And that, that, that in and of itself, um, you know, especially for individuals who are in the state that you're, you're talking about, um, you know, you, you hear a lot about empowerment, um, no, but there's nothing more empowering than, than that because it gives you steps. It gives you little things. It gives you those, those little things that you can do that will pull you out of that, you know, whatever swamp it is, um, metaphorically speaking, but really when it comes down to it, it's this, um, you know, this shutdown of, of your, of your nervous system. And it gives you an understanding of yourself. And, uh, and then that's just from there, you know, there's nothing more empowering for, for mm -hmm. people. Yeah. There's nothing more empowering for, for, for any of us, I think, than to know that you, you do have, that that strength that you do have that ability to to get out mm -hmm. of whatever hell that yeah. that you're in and that it's not anybody else's you know it's not magic it's nothing crazy you know it's it's not the you know the the professor's fault or it's not your boss's fault or, you know it's it's nothing it's it's this something that's very much within um, your control is to is to heal Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it has the potential, I think, uh, to, you know, sometimes when you're in this state of confluence with, with the thoughts and feelings that feel hopeless or, and negative, uh, it, it seems you have this tunnel vision and you're operating in a certain mode that uh, it, it, it's disenfranchising, it, it, it's disempowering, it doesn't let you see any of the other possibilities. And like you were saying, Corey, I mean, the exercises are literally pictures of babies in this book. The, the exercises in this book couldn't be more gentle. They're not, you know, two-hour uh, Gurdjieff dances and movements that require a, a sophisticated degree of uh, synchronized movements according to beat and measure. This is, this is very simple stuff. And, um, yeah, I agree. You know, it's, 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 it, can, it can shift it can subtly shift your whole framework for, uh, for how you're dealing with yourself, others, and your reality. And it's the foundation work, basically. It's um, like at the Priory, Gurdjieff in his prospectus for the you know, Institute for the Harmonious, Harmonious Development of Man said, there's a certain amount of repairing of the machine that needs to go on before someone can even engage in um, self-work. And... I think this is an, uh, an an integral part of that is to basically get your nervous system functioning again, um, to achieve a, 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 a an adequate level of um, autonomic nervous system health to then facilitate the the clarity of mind and the 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 physical health needed to to be able to engage in some um, some more difficult work. You know. So um, that said, we'll be talking about the, this book. I'm sure some. Some more some other time and of course other great topics as well so if you enjoyed make sure to subscribe and like and we will see y'all later bye bye